Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and this is a space where we're intentionally bridging belief and ministry praxis, theology and worship. And I'm so delighted to have Dr. Conrad Gimpf, who's a lecturer in New Testament at London School of Theology. He's personally one of my favorite Bible teachers, and his specialty areas are in Mark, Luke, and Acts, and the backgrounds of the Pauline letters. So we're going to be talking a lot about worship and scripture and worship in the New Testament. Hey, it's super fun to be with my friend, former colleague, um, Dr. Conrad Gimp. Hi, Conrad. Hi, Jeremy. Great to see you again. And I just love to help people get to know you. Like, you've been a part of many different types of Christian worship services all over the country, back back in the states. As as I say the word, kind of corporate worship. What's what's a memory or an occasion or an experience that maybe comes to mind that you were a part of in in corporate Christian worship. I'm as you say I'm a real weird mix and I've been all, <laughs> all over <laughs> the place. So um I'm a Lutheran Missouri Synod and very high church. Uh, my wife is conservative Baptist and very low church and we've been to all sorts of places but a a couple of memories really stand out both of them high church. Mm. Um one was when we lived in Harvard Square in the other Cambridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We attended worship at an Episcopal monastery, mm. uh, and it was a smallish worship service, But and everybody would come up to the front of the worship space for the actual Eucharist and hold hands around in a circle around the altar. It was just amazing to be very formal but very personal. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever been in a formal liturgical setting where you've had like of course where you've come forward or maybe had prayer on the sides but actually where you really have that sense of communion community as as you're there particularly in a formal yeah liturgical setting then the other one was a very impersonal formal place where i had to go up to the front and i was really offended because nobody there was no clear instruction as to what to do and it just felt so strange and alien and then all of a sudden it struck me that that's not a bad thing to feel when you're coming up you know for something as awesome as community to feel like you don't know what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to say is probably okay this is for communion like coming up for to receive yeah coming up to the altar do i kneel do i put my hands out what do i do yeah that's how i should feel coming for communion, coming yeah. to that table hmm. with that Lord. A sense of so. mystery, a sense of the unknown. Well, you've been, yeah, teaching in biblical studies, particularly the New Testament. I, I don't even know if I've ever asked, I know a little bit of your story and, and life story, but what actually got you into studying kind of theology or, or studying biblical studies? What Was there a, yeah, something in your, your heart that shifted, an experience? I mean, you ended up Studying with Howard Marshall, right? And... Yeah. Well, it, the real shift was when I was in high school. I'd grown up Lutheran and always believed that stuff, sort of. <laughs> but it wasn't very important to me, and I also sort of believed in astrology and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then a Jewish friend of mine became a Christian, got mm. saved. And yeah. it was, you know, the sort of dramatic conversion where 
he then was disowned by his family and they had a funeral for him but meanwhile he's giving out tracts to everybody yeah. at high school and carrying his bible around with a box of crayons in order to color in different passages um oh wow this and, is pre-highlight like pre-highlighters now um he was a good he was a good friend of mine and he asked me one day you've been a christian all your life why didn't you ever tell me about this mm. stuff and that really changed me and i knew i had to be focused on theology on new testament yeah. on christianity in a way that i hadn't before and had to give up other things and focus there so his questioning around like hey you're a christian why yeah why haven't you talked about that kind of fueled and a desire to learn to grow to even also in your faith like not only just to i couldn't study. answer the question yeah. and i should have had an answer for that question yeah. i yeah. should have been doing that i should have been involved yeah. another friend of mine uh worked for the salvation army and it was during a period of rioting in the states in in the east coast mm -hmm. and she was with the salvation army serving coffee and donuts to both sides in the riots and stuff and and i'm what am i doing you know i'm not that's not christianity was became central to them in a way that it should have been central to me yeah and so I made the decision to make that, to make that change, and that's why I made the decision I made to 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 go to a a, a Christian college and study Bible and theology. Yeah. yeah, and that then you just once once you hit that at kind of the undergrad level, is that right? You've well, it wasn't clear. I was, it, a, yeah. I was a pretty bad student, but <laughs> but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So yeah, it was a refining process of realizing that I wouldn't be any good as a pastor and realizing other things that I wouldn't be very good at, but things <laughs> that I can't do teach. right? So. <laughs> but there were ways at which I was pretty good at communicating. And so, yeah. Mm. Well, Conrad's one of my, yeah, one of my favorite Bible teachers and has such a great ability to, to, yeah, both teach for undergrads, um, also supervise, as he mentioned, but also, at local churches or we're at London School of Theology right now in chapel, just communicate God's word in such a creative way. Um, I guess just as, as we're kind of getting in into this a little bit, we're going to be talking about just the New Testament and worship and scripture as we kick off. Is scripture relevant anymore? I mean, we're 2022, a lot's happening and there's been a lot of failures in the church and there's this kind of you know, growing spiritual but not religious category and kind of lots of sur surveys. And I think biblical knowledge may be at the lowest of ever. I was talking with a youth pastor friend who um, taught on Abraham. And at the end of end of the Wednesday night youth group meeting, one of the one of the students, you know, this is in America, who came up to him and said, I really like that um, that, that sermon you gave on Abraham Lincoln. And it was just this disconnect from some of these huge um, characters in, in scripture is, yeah, is, is scripture still relevant? That's, I think that question is the wrong way around. I mean, I would, cause I'm a new Testament guy. <laughs> and I do too. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a podcast question going on here, <laughs> but, but I think it's important to recognize that the question is the wrong way around. It's, sort of like asking is god relevant to my life mm. and really the question is how can i be more relevant to what god is doing and to what god has done over history mm. um so the bible it's not that it's you, I, I don't want to be asking the bible how can you help me today 
I want to be asking the Bible, what are you about? And how can I make my today relevant to God's great enterprise for the universe? Um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, with relationships, there's some, there's some people who are in relationships that are constantly have the attitude of, oh, okay, that's enough about you. Now tell me about me. Yeah. And, and we know that that's evil. Yeah. We know that that's wrong when we see it between two people. But I think it's sometimes how I want to react to the Bible. Mm -hmm. I want to look at the Bible sometimes and I'm asking it, yeah, yeah, enough about that. What about, what is there here for me? Yeah. And that's, Christianity is about relationship. And to have that relationship, you need to be interested in the other. And, you know, asking how you can be relevant to it. My wife used to work for, um, for an oil company uh, and was interested in, had to be interested in things about oil rigs and transporting yeah. of oil that pff, no relevance to me, except that it was important to the person I loved. So I was interested in it. Yeah. And that's how I think we should be with the Bible. I think, you, yeah, I, I can remember, you know, having these conversations with you, like so many of us, and particularly those that have come from evangelical or free church streams, Baptist, we do scoop out some of our favorite parts and of the scriptures and then use them as tools for everyday life. But I remember as I was talking with you, like you were talking about how as we come to scriptures, God's, God's word, this love letter, how we should allow it to not just give us tools, but actually transform us do you remember this yeah discussion oh yeah you're you're remembering my batman spider-man yeah thing. that's the one yeah <laughs> tell tell remind me about that like how yeah sometimes we we we, we use things as tools like screwdriver and yeah. oh this is the scripture that's gonna address this particular issue and yeah so I, I, I say it. that i say that folks come to bible college here sometimes thinking that they want to be like batman and that they have to train and they have utility belts, and they want me to help them with scripture to figure out what bits are relevant and what bits are irrelevant. And they'll take the relevant bits and squirrel them away in pockets, in compartments in the utility belt, so that when they confront a situation in real life, yeah. they can choose the appropriate tool and toss it like a batarang at the situation. And I don't think God wants us to be Batman. I think he wants us to be more like Spider-Man, who... So it's a very different process of becoming a superhero where he's he doesn't decide he wants to be a superhero. He's out doing something and he gets bitten by a spider. Um, and depending on how old you are, it's either a radioactive <laughs> or genetically modified. Or depending now what multiverse it is, it's and still a spider. There's still a spider bite and still something. That... But he gets bitten and yeah. he changes inside and things begin happening to him that he doesn't know what to what to do with. He sticks to things, and the yeah. goop shoots out of his wrist, and that's not really relevant to crime fighting in the way that the bat gas mask and the batarang are yeah. designed to be relevant to the task. Sticking to stuff and goop shooting out of you, but he makes it, he becomes relevant. He changes inside and becomes relevant, and I think scripture is really like that, that God doesn't fit in your compartments. He's not that kind of God. He bites, and we change. 
And it's our job to learn to use the change to become relevant to situation and to fight crime where we are, maybe without the uniform. But No, I, lo I love that because I think so much of my training, even, yeah, even courses at the master's level, like, is about getting more biblical tools in our belt. And not that there's, yeah, there's... That's not completely wrong, but scripture speaks to certain situations and circumstances so clearly. But right. I think as I heard that from, from you, it yeah reminds me of the Christian faith, the Christian life is about total transformation. It's not about me and this new tool that I read, you know, or got from scripture, but it's about being transformed into the image of Christ. I studied at a pretty liberal seminary. Once again, conservative undergraduate, liberal master's degree, and then fairly conservative PhD again. And it was really an interesting sort of culture mm. shift going both ways. Um, and my, it, my master's degree, people were convinced that ethics had to be situational, situational mm -hmm. ethics, that everything depended on the circumstance. And they were able to point to things in Paul's writings in particular in the New Testament that really looked like that was what he was saying. But, but it's actually different, and it's an important difference. Paul is situational in his application of ethics and in his emphases but he has a clear, absolute sense of right and wrong. But he doesn't think that that's the most important thing. So he knows, for instance, that meat offered to idols has not become supernaturally evil. And if you eat it, it's not like eating and there's a demon in it that's yeah. going to... He knows that it's not that super supernatural thing. He knows that it's perfectly okay to eat that stuff. Yeah. But he also knows that to some people it's really offensive. And so he has this situational application, which is not seizing your rights, but letting go of your rights depending on the circumstance. Mm. So he knows that he can eat that stuff without yeah. harming. But if it's going to offend someone else that he's eating that stuff, he won't mm. do it. Mm. Because what's true is important to know, but your actions are based on a blend of between what you know to be true and what you think God wants you to do in the situation and what's best in the situation. And that's really interesting. So I, I tell the story to my students that it's like um, it's like the curator of a, of a, of a museum. The, the museum curator comes out of his office and looks at the wall and the paintings and he says to his juniors to his apprentice curators <laughs> the monet nudge it to the left <laughs> um and and they you know snap to attention and they listen to him because he knows what he's talking about and they nudge the monet to the left now one of them is an evangelical one of these apprentices <laughs> like me <laughs> i would have heard my mentor say the Monet nudge it to the left, and I would have written a memory verse little card yeah. <laughs> saying Monet nudge to yeah, the left. Yeah. And then every time I saw Monet for the rest of my life, I would nudge it to the left, whether it needed it or not. Mm -hmm. My professors at 
at Boston University were wrong in that the curator has a clear sense of straight and could have said, make that straight. But the curator says, nudge it to the left, not because every Monet needs to be nudged to the left, but because some paintings need to be nudged to the left to become straight and some to the right. And that's the weird job we have as Christians. Unlike Phariseeism, which is just a checklist of do this, do that, do this, we have to make the word of God, made the standards of God, and the love of God and the mercy of God real to the people around us. And sometimes that means nudging some paintings to the left and sometimes to the right. And that's really hard as a Christian to know what to do when. I can remember, yeah, this resonates with another conversation I've had with you on on yeah, Paul talking to the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth. And right. both of them, he's talking about the Holy Spirit or quite a bit about the Spirit. But but in a sense, the communities are in very different places, yeah, right? Galatia exactly. is those Judaizers and the law and well, let's not talk about the Spirit or let's not engage with that. And Corinth is just this crazy, everyone's prophesying, speaking in tongues, drinking, also doing some other unethical things, sleeping with somebody's, is it mother-in-law or like, yeah. and, and in a sense, yeah, take, take me into that. Like, yeah, well, that's, that's in, essentially I, yeah. Paul is saying to the Galatians, loosen up. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are getting interested in the law and that's not where it's at. It's about freedom. Yeah. But to the Corinthians, their life is all about freedom and nothing about paying attention to what God wants or what's good, what is good for each other. Yeah. Uh, and so to the Galatians, Paul has to say, loosen up. And to the Corinthians, Paul has to say, tighten up. Nudge the painting to the left, <laughs> nudge the painting to the right. And part of my problem uh, as an evangelical is that my tendency is to look at Scripture for solutions that resonate with the solution I've kind of already got in mind is a good idea. (laughs) So if I think that the church today needs to loosen up, then I'm going to gravitate towards the passage where Paul says loosen up rather than the passage where Paul says get with the program. What I need to be thinking is not what in the Bible resonates with my solution, but what in the Bible resonates with my situation when there are communities that are like mine in the New Testament, what does the Bible say to that? And that really hit me one day thinking about my life growing up in a suburb of New York City. Um, Our favorite Bible verses were all about, you know, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you drink. And, you know, God is, you know, Jesus was not saying that to people in a well-to-do suburb. Jesus was saying that to people who were really really worried, worried, who were subsistence living. He had very different things to say to people that were in my situation, which was a situation of, of, you know, being vaguely religious and well-to-do. And they don't tend to put those things on posters. And in Christian bookshops. <laughs> um, but that's what I needed to hear. And that's in a sense what happened to me, you know, when I, when I, when my Jewish friend became converted and I was faced with my friend who was in the Salvation Army, 
was that I realized Jesus wasn't saying to me, don't worry about that. Jesus was saying to me, hey, you, <laughs> it's time for you to leave some things behind and to pick up other things and follow me. What helps? I mean, I I hear what you're, you're talking about is really biblical interpretation. Like, what what are some tools for you like that have been helpful as you've, whether that's in that moment in your own life of kind of coming to that understanding of actually what what God is saying to me right now through scripture is not, oh, you know, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to bless you, but actually, hey, this thing is this thing is real. Or as, as we were talking about Corinth and Galatia, like what are some, some tools or some approaches that you found helpful in, in kind of understanding the meaning of these passages, particularly in our in our current context or current current moments? Well, other than a full theology, <laughs> three-year theology degree. Well, no, no, I wasn't going to say that. Well, what I was going to say is that it's pretty basic stuff, and mm. it's basic stuff that you know about relationships as well, mm. is that you need, I needed to stop thinking about myself and stop looking for what was relevant. to. I needed to ask questions and be interested in scripture mm-hmm. and to sort of throw myself into scripture and be noticing things that you don't notice when you read scripture trying to get nuggets out of it. So be, I needed to notice the things like, wait a minute, Paul is saying, you know, this worried me for a while. This I presented it like it's, yeah. hey, this is fun. But it worried me for a long time that Paul said very different things to, in Galatians than he said in Corinthians. And, you know, some people take things like in the history of scholarship have taken things like that and assumed that it was different authors and that the New Testament is lying or inconsistent. And that really, you need to feel that worry and wrestle with the mm. stuff like Jacob wrestling with an angel. Yeah. And you might come away limping, but you come away blessed. Um, I, I needed to be asking questions of scripture and listening and wrestling mm-hmm. to get answers. And I, I think that is a, you know, that biblical interpretation really should start there with noticing careful to notice what's in the text and careful to ask questions but fortunately going to an undergraduate that was as conservative as i did i came away with a clear clear confidence Mm -hmm. of scripture's authority and consistency Mm -hmm. and truth Mm -hmm. and so i knew when i saw things that looked like they contradicted that it was worth looking for a resolution for how those things can be held in attention and held together. I hear, yeah, a a sense of humility as you come to the text too, that this is God-breathed, this is God's word, that before putting yourself above or in the text, a sense of of what what is God saying to those yeah, yeah, I have a, a first huge advantage there. Also, Those of us who are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did badly as an undergraduate, and I wanted to be, thought I needed to be a pastor, and then realized that I would be bad at being that. And that kind of stuff of of being confident that God loves you and has something for you, but also being able to see things that you're not good at. Yeah, some of us are, are at an advantage of realizing we don't know what's going on in the text and asking questions and trying to wrestle. Well, well Conrad, again, your your focus has been on New Testament studies at LST, teaching 
Acts and Gospels and yeah, so much. I'd love just to dig into a couple of topics around worship just for a couple minutes. And particularly, you know, one that one that comes up every once in a while is the kind of a big question. Why do we worship Jesus? Why did the first Christians worship Jesus? This was their rabbi for some of them, their friend, their their mentor, like um, brother, their brother even. Like how, you know, and I, I particularly as, as I think of this, I think of some of the PBS specials of from, you know, from Jesus of Nazareth to the Christ or, you know, where there's this this thought of like this long evolution of, of well, Jesus was admired but wasn't worshipped till Paul or even later than Paul. And I, I'm just curious in, in kind of your studies and reflections. Yeah. Why? Why Jesus? Why, why Jesus as not just how we access the Father, but also Jesus in that place of, of adoration, of praise, of worship, of devotion? Well, I think it's right to think that it must have been a process. The the first Christians were Jews, and to think of this human being walking around as God incarnate, if it wasn't true, it would be horrible blasphemy. Yeah. If it wasn't true, they should be killed for it, according to their laws. It didn't come to them naturally to do this, except there's something in all of us that when something happens, we say some version of holy mackerel. <laughs> and most of the time we're slapped down for it. Um, the ancient people would worship things because they had a clearer sense of not being in charge than we do. <laughs> but it's fun to see throughout scripture that whenever Jews try to worship something that isn't God, unless it's Satan, the, the angel or whoever says, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. Don't worship me, I'm just an ordinary human being. Don't worship me. But there still is this tendency to like start to worship the thing yeah. and then be told, no, don't do that. And I think that's probably where it starts with Jesus, that somebody says, oh my God. And Jesus doesn't say, don't say that. <laughs> Jesus accepts it. Yeah. But he doesn't say, I, okay, it's time to worship me. It's time. He, he goes about things in such a roundabout way. It's really kind of surprising. You know, he never says, I'm the Messiah. Instead, there comes a point in the ministry when he thinks they've seen enough that he says to them, Okay, guys, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? <laughs> and when Peter says, you're the Messiah of God, Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But Now, that's not, Messiah doesn't mean divine. Yeah. But Jesus is like that all the way along. Unveiling his identity. Or, yeah. yeah. And writers are told, I mean, if any of your students have creative writing classes, the most important rule of creative writing is... Don't tell show. <laughs> if you're writing about a character who's funny, don't say they're funny and they're always making people laugh. You think of jokes and put them in their mouths and make your readers laugh. And Jesus was very much a show, don't tell kind of guy. And so it is him doing only what 
God could do, like only what God could do. Yeah. And, but show, yeah, showing that. Yeah. And this is what, you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, this is what they don't get and what we sometimes don't get in trying to talk to them. They want to know, okay, where does it say in so many words that Jesus is God in the New Testament? And especially if you use their New Testament, you'll never be able to because they've edited the bits out. Yeah. <laughs> except, except that the New Testament is full of these crazy things where they substitute the name Jesus for the name God in ways that you shouldn't do yeah. if you're Jewish. My favorite one goes unnoticed, and that is that the prophets... I studied the prophets a lot as an undergraduate because I thought they were so cool. The prophets are full of this day of judgment that they call the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, when everything is going to change. In the New Testament, we don't notice it in English. But in the New Testament, it's no longer the day of Yahweh. It's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's very clear. In the New Testament, they were worshiping Jesus as God, even though that was a very dangerous thing to think, but they had become convinced of it yeah. by Jesus himself. Well, I think of even Stephen's kind of prayer sermon there at, at his martyrdom is, I mean, he's, yeah, he's being killed because of what he says. And it's Jesus in his, in, in his glory in heaven, like... It's a very high Christology there in, in Acts. But Thomas, too, yeah. you yeah. know, who <laughs> he's called the doubter, yeah. but he's the one who gets down on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, don't worship me. Yeah. I'm just a human being like everybody else, except that I'm dead and alive again. But yeah. other than that. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the practices that, yeah, has, has been throughout the, the church for centuries um, revolves around eating potlucks and meals and, you know, youth groups have pizza parties, but Jesus throughout, yeah, particularly in the gospels, we see Jesus eating a lot. Even some of his, um, his, what would you call them now? Like those who tweet about him on social media would have said, Hey, he's drinking too much or eating, eating too much would be trolling him a little bit on, on that, what was, yeah, what was maybe unique about, you've written some on this, on encountering Jesus and meals and mealtime habits of the Messiah. Like what, what was unique about those, those, those meals with Jesus? Are there things that were consistent? Why, why do we have, you know, Holy Scripture inspired by God um, talking about Jesus eating fish or mm. having some bread or at, at a Pharisee's house, having a meal. Why, why do those occur? What's important about that? We have better, we probably have a better understanding of this now than we did before COVID and before shortages and before being worried that we, you know, are we going to be able to have stuff to eat or are the shelves going to be bare? Um, eating in many cultures is not something that you take for granted, not something you just go to the supermarket and yeah. pick up the stuff. It's something that you're or McDonald's drive-through in your car, Chick-fil-A in yeah. your car. Yeah. There were very there were only Chick-fil-A in the first century. <laughs> so <laughs> the other things just that's the only fast food. That was the only one. So <laughs> so was there Chick-fil-A in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> <laughs> so eating was really important 
important and something that you did worry about. And sharing a meal with someone else then becomes like, whoa, um, becomes, you know, it's hard to think what, what would be like that today, but opening up your home would be something like that. You know, having a computer that you have an account on it and somebody else has an account on it, you share it. Yeah. That it's uh, eating is a personal important sharing your Netflix thing. account maybe. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> that's too easily done. So what's important initially about Jesus is who he he eats with. There's a famous scholar who who um, who came up with this great line and he said Jesus was killed because of the way he ate, mm. <laughs> mm. which is hilarious and yeah. wrong, but also true. Yeah. Yeah. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, and that has to do with association and with acceptance. This was a real problem, um, a real problem for the Pharisees in particular. The Pharisees and Jesus fought so much because they were so similar rather than because they were so different. But one of the ways that they were different is the Pharisees and Jesus, well, they, they're the same in that they both want sinners to come to God. And the Pharisees are convinced, um, and this sounds like a lot of Christians today, actually. The Pharisees are convinced that the way that you get sinners to God is by getting them to renounce their evil ways and come to God. That sounds great. That sounds obvious. And the way that you get them to renounce their evil ways is by showing them that your way, the godly way, is much better. So the Pharisees are in the business of addressing sinners and saying, stop your evil ways. Then you can come and dine with us and be with us and have the happy and successful life that we do. And the Pharisees, all they're bragging and all they're showing off, it probably starts with trying to show that God's way is better. I'm happier than you are because I'm in love with God and God's in love with me. And you're sinning, so you're unhappy. So stop what you're doing, then come with us, join us, be part of us. And Jesus comes along and accepts them and tells them God loves them while they're still sinners. God loves you, says Paul, probably with some bile in his mouth left over from his Pharisee <laughs> days. This is something that we would have trouble with today, that Jesus goes to tax collectors and sinners before they change, tells them God loves them, and he loves them and accepts them. And as a result, they change. But the Pharisees don't wait around to see that. What they see is that all this work they've been doing with this sinner, trying to convince this sinner that their ways are wrong and they're in trouble and they need to change and then they'll be accepted, all that work is undone in a second by Jesus going and saying, God loves you now. And that was through Often through meals, through, through through table fellowship, through right. That's that's a crucial phrase. Yeah. It's a peculiar phrase yeah. to us, but it helps us get across this idea of eating with someone is accepting them on their own terms and being with them. Uh, 
and that was a that was a problem for the Pharisees, but it became a way of Jesus showing fellowship and showing friendship and showing belonging mm. and God's love. Hey, uh, yeah, I, I interviewed for for another podcast, uh, African American pastor and white pastor, and he was also Lutheran background from Dakota. The um, they're based in Virginia Beach, and they've been planting a multicultural church for about. I think 25 years now, it could be longer. I'm sorry if I messed that up if you guys are listening. But one of the things that they did intentionally was, you know, draw together different musical forms and art form and preaching styles and and prayer styles that would connect with white Americans, Latinos, um, you know, African-Americans and, and other cultures that were represented. And yeah, I think eight or nine years, the church was growing close to a thousand and had really vibrant services that, that yeah, were, were full of people from all over um, and every culture, kind of a little bit of taste of heaven of every tribe and tongue. But then when they'd have like pizza or barbecue after, after the service, pretty much people would get into their own subgroups or even cultural groups. So you'd have a African-American table over here, white American. And so they felt, I remember them sharing this with me, like felt only when those, those group, they really only had a kind of multicultural church when those groups actually started eating together, not just singing or praying together or sitting in the same building, but actually when there were those moments, um, of kind of, hey, you get to decide what you're going to do and who you're going to sit with. And some of it was what you were just talking about, I think, the, the, the kind of fellowship, the table rituals. It's awkward to eat with people sometimes from other cultures. What do you, you know, yeah. do you use your hands? Do you use a fork? Do you not use your left hand? Do you drink this first? Do you pray before you eat? Do you pray after you eat? Do you not pray, you know, at all? And I think, yeah, it, it there are some resonances of that in our own culture, but not probably to the degree that there was 2000 years ago. And so yeah. Jesus's disciples and the early church began to have a meal as the centerpiece of worship. I mean, drawing from Passover, Jesus's last meal with his disciples, the last supper that also comes into this in what we call the Lord's Supper, a communion or Eucharist. You talked about those services. Um, yeah. yeah. In, in our first part, why do you think that's been carried over to 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 the church like to two Christians where even Gentiles who weren't from that Jewish community and so when they gathered together they sure sang read scriptures had sometimes words from the community and encouragements but also had the simple things of bread and wine why yeah, I think that's really important is that this became a symbol of not only Jesus' acceptance and fellowship with tax collectors and sinners and with his friends. But Jesus also deliberately made it a symbol of his self-sacrifice. Um, when he, at the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, said, this is what this means. I, I, I realized uh, when I was writing the book, you mentioned my book called Mealtime Habits of the Messiah. I realized when I was writing that book, how extraordinary an event the Last Supper was, where Jesus was doing a Passover meal and says, okay, this is what this means now. <laughs> like, like, what? There's some hubris there, it feels like. Exactly. Right? Like, yes, exactly. It's like, it's like the pastor comes to your house 
while you're finishing decorating the Christmas tree. And as you're putting the angel or the star on top of the tree, you know, to represent the star that hovers over the... It, as you're putting this, the pastor says, from now on, when you do this, remember me. Yeah, yeah. This is about me. Yeah. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. Jesus yeah. is claiming that the Passover and that supper, that is about him. And he makes it about him and makes it indelibly about him. I love the, you know, my favorite story is the, in the whole of the Bible is the story about the two guys, two saps who are walking along the road and this stranger walks along with them and he's, he's oddly dressed like a, like a Jawa, you know, he's got, he's got the big <laughs> hood Jedi the with the hood, glowing yeah, yeah. eyes and they don't know it's Jesus, but yeah. it's Jesus and they're kept from recognizing him, but they recognize him later. He teaches them all about the scriptures and they don't recognize him when he's teaching. But later on, he comes into their house and when they're going to serve a meal, he acts like the host. And he, it's great because Luke, who writes this story, uses the same four verbs in a row that he used at the Lord's Supper and that he used at the feeding the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus took the bread yeah. and blessed it and broke it and gave it, it to them. Yeah. And then their eyes were opened. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is relationship and fellowship and self-sacrifice. Jesus is not teaching as, you know, didn't our hearts burn within us, Luke? The, the teaching is great. But it's not about the teaching, it's about the relationship with Jesus Christ and that self-sacrifice, both of which are combined by Jesus in this symbol of the Lord's Supper. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's proclaiming his death, his resurrection, as he, as you said, like the, like the pastor with the, the star on the top of the tree, Jesus This is, is my saying, body, this is my Salvation blood. history, the Passover, the lamb, the feast. It's me. It's, it's me. It's me, guys. But then also, it, it is a meal of of reconciliation or a, a feast of drawing all types of different people exactly. in, into Christ. And exactly. I think the first Christians struggled with some of the same cultural... I mean, it's different, different cultural groups, but the divisiveness we have today oh, is, not, is not anything new. These Oh, bizarre. Yeah. I'm writing about Acts now. I'm trying to write a book about Acts now, and... Most of the books that I read about Acts when I was um, when I was studying Acts are about how these amazing disciples turned the world upside down. The book that I want to write is the other way around. These disciples didn't have a clue what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> they they got everything that they could get wrong, except they did have the clue. They did have a clue, and the clue is that Jesus loves them, and they love Jesus, and they're going to talk about Jesus wherever they go. That's the clue that everything else they just have. And one of the most bizarre things about the book of Acts is that we think of it as this great missionary journey of Paul to the Gentiles, and it's turning the whole... For the first half of the book... There are no Gentiles in the church. The Jewish Christians don't seem to realize that they've been called to spread the gospel beyond their, yeah. com beyond their community, beyond yeah. their ethnic, yeah. ethnic community. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though Jesus said, you know, to uh, make disciples of all nations, 
Luke, when he talks about Pentecost, says that there were Jews in Jerusalem from every nation. And I'm sure from reading the book of Acts, I'm sure that the first Christians thought, okay, we've done that. We've made disciples of all nations because there were Jews from all yeah, nations here. Jesus spoke some other languages. We got, we got this mission sorted. <laughs> got that one ticked. What's next? Yeah. But, but they learned eventually that this stuff broke down and it was, you know, God doing it, of course, that Peter was still talking about Jesus when Cornelius yeah. Yeah, and read, his read pals. read this morning. Captain Cornelius comes. All of a sudden... Cornelius becomes a Christian and starts speaking in tongues like the disciples themselves do. And the Jewish Christians are not ready for this. And they have objections. This is chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. They have objections to Gentiles becoming Christians in the book of Acts. It's crazy. I I just reading that this morning. Barnabas goes to police it to see if it's, you know, discern if it's happening. And he kind of says it is. It's It's okay. And I guess yeah, and so with 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 that that kind of what's happening in Acts and Cornelius and Peter's vision about kill and eat and these things that he wasn't supposed to eat. Um, we talked about the Galatians too, um, kind of wrestling with law and who should we? What, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a part of the way? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to change their eating habits so they they are not only um, yeah, uh, show allegiance to Christ and his his way, but also become Jewish. You also see then, like within these Gentile communities where I think particularly Corinthians, you and I have talked about it a number of times, but where the, the kind of worship services, these house group meetings begin to look less like a, a, a meeting devoted to Christ or a meeting devoted to his, his people, but look more like a Greco Roman symposium or a meal or a a big party. Like we might see in gladiator or something where there's so much drinking and eating and, you know, people who have work late or slaves or have jobs don't get to eat anything. And they also miss out on the, the, the bread and wine part, the Lord's supper part, or you have, people drinking a little too much and instead of singing songs of the spirit or singing songs from a little too much wine. And so how, how does that play into this, this kind of idea of, of this, this special meal that also proclaims who Christ is, but also reconciles all these people. What, what was happening maybe in that Corinthian setting um, that needed to be reshaped or renewed back to what, what this meal was was really about. Well, I'm convinced that the whole Corinthian deal is about looking out for number one. And that when they speak in tongues, they're not celebrating God. They're celebrating themselves and their gifts. Yeah. Uh, the Corinthians were self-centered. And that's really a problem. And it relates to something that I talked about earlier. And that is the way that we read scripture, looking for stuff that resonates with us. And what we need to be doing is looking at scripture to seeing how it critiques us and our situation. We're not exactly looking for stuff that's relevant to us. We're looking for what we can do that's relevant and in line with God's truth. And the Corinthians weren't doing that. The Corinthians were using meal forms that were 
common to their culture and they were comfortable with and trying to sort of paste Christianity on over that rather than looking to see what Christianity does and how in their culture they can best express Christianity. Now, and I, there's, it's such a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. And, and it winds up with Paul saying something that I hope Jesus never says to, to our worshipers. Paul says to the Corinthians, your worship does more harm than good. And that is really hard. He's not saying your life is doing more. Your worship is doing more harm than good. Um, and that's horrible. But their worship was continuing their culture and their attitudes, which they weren't changing to bring in line with with the gospel. And it was essentially putting your own preferences, your own desires, your own needs above every other need. Without, yes, but, but dressing it up, yeah. putting Christian stickers all yeah. over it. Yeah. But, oh... How do you do that? Uh, you know, that's this is one of the things that I, you know, I'm so glad that you're doing it, and not me, because I would find it really hard to know. You don't want to go the other extreme of just saying, well, you know, they didn't have dishwashers, so we won't have to yeah. we'll do things just the way that they have it in scripture. A very and, strict regulatory and principle, it's like, not like that. You so want no microphones or no. <laughs> No you, electricity. Yeah. You want, you need to be culturally relevant. You need to be, you need to be translating it into a, you know, you can't do everything in Latin or Greek. You have to do things in the language that people understand, but without the baggage of culture. And it's so hard for me. And I guess this is a question for you. How do we, in our worship services where we have bands up in front that are doing performances how do we know that that's not just us taking a form that we're comfortable with and pretending it's Christian? How do we know that that's actually adapting what's Christian to our culture? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast or a book, but my initial thoughts are, you know, to thinking of worship kind of in, in three ways, the vertical dimension, like between me and God and us and God and so much of, of I'd say, the songs written in, in the last 20 or 30 years are those very personal devotional songs, which are uh -huh. special. The church has needed those. It's brought life and been able to express that relationship you've been saying. But also, as we look in the New Testament and, and in the history of the church, worship is also vertical. Those songs are to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to to teach one another um even paul talks about it's that horizontal yeah sorry yeah so i mean i'm i'm making these conrad's helping me because if you, you're not seeing me make these but it's that that horizontal side between one another and we're we're teaching and encouraging one another and so to have that feedback loop as a worship pastor a worship leader and um, I know that's hard. That can be painful as you get emails on a Sunday night after you what you thought was a great service, but it actually maybe didn't land well with the community. And to be able to have a, a a place to discern and talk about that. But also, I think in Corinthians even, it talks about as outsiders, those who aren't from the community. Yeah. And so worship is, it's not, you know, worship and evangelism are 
are different fields or different fields of study, but also to think about how our worship can be hospitable to those who are from you know, other, other cultures, other religious traditions. And that's where it sometimes even gets more messy because what, particularly, you know, living in Turkey, like if, you know, some, some Turkish pastors or leaders would maybe want to have a very open table for those, you know, to come and have communion. Anyone can, but actually for those coming from a different religious tradition, if they would be seen by their family or friends and they haven't really decided to make that commitment to Christ, which means leaving friends and it means leaving family wow. and it means sometimes yeah. losing your job. If they would come to the table to to eat that bread and, and drink that wine, they would be immediately identified in their community community as a convert or as a heretic. And and that has intense repercussions. And so some of the Turkish churches were were connected with, they would they would say, you know, this meal is for those who are believers or followers. And um, we just encourage you not to take this meal and what feels like inhospitality to maybe yeah. me as an outsider, as a foreigner, actually is one of the, the nicest, most hospitable things. And they say, hey, come, come have tea with us in the garden and we'd love to talk to you about Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about why we encourage you not to take this meal, talk about their own testimonies and how they've, you know, as they've met Jesus, what it meant for their, for their extended family. And so I think, as you said, it is, it is messy, but scripture itself can be a guide. And also the, the history of the church gives us many opportunities where we can look at the upsides and downsides when we've, when we've failed. Um, But yeah, I think one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is that it is translatable um yeah we use we don't use yahweh we i mean we do but we don't use that 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 name like maybe our, some of my muslim friends would only use the name allah for god and if they're indonesian they'd say that if they're british they'd say that if they're you know if they're from yeah eastern europe ukraine other places and so even our name for god has that ability to be be translated and to be localized and contextualized, but not without challenges and problems, which is again, one of the reasons, yeah, it's, it's been great to have you here to kind of wrestle some with, with what some of the, the first Christians were, were wrestling with. I have just one more question for you, Conrad. Shoot. Um, this is from a, a student and it, it, it gets a little more personal, kind of back to the beginning a little bit. Um, you remember back to the future. Yeah. The DeLorean. Yeah. So, Conrad, if you could jump into the DeLorean and see yourself, maybe as you were finishing your PhD and you wouldn't destroy the, uh, whatever, the time continuum by talking to yourself, if if you wouldn't start a, a whatever, a, <laughs> the photograph a branch in the yeah, multiverse yeah. or whichever, whichever your view is, if you wouldn't destroy all of life as we know it, what? What encouragement or challenge um, might you have for yourself as you were kind of getting into life, getting into ministry, getting into teaching? It's really hard. I know um, it's a, stu- a student question, so it's better than mine. It's a student question, so it's... <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I'm not sure that any of the things I'd want to say now, <laughs> I would be in a position to hear back then or have any idea of how to grasp it. When I was 
in when I was an undergraduate, somebody gave me a greeting card. No, I bought a greeting card. I found it in a, I found it in a card shop, and it was um, Eric Satie was one of my favorite composers back then, and apparently he said, <laughs> or, you know, in this pre-internet, maybe this is where all these false quotations started. As long <laughs> greeting cards, he said everybody told me I'd understand when I'm fifty. I'm fifty. I don't understand anything. I thought that was so funny that I bought the card, but I never found an appropriate time to send it. So I actually kept it. <laughs> I actually had it when I turned 50. Wow. And it was wrong. There were things I understood about myself when I was 50 that I didn't understand about myself when I was... But there's no way to tell myself those mm. things. Mm. I would have, you know, I would have... If I was going back to myself as an undergraduate or or um, I nearly failed my PhD, I, it, I, it was awful. You know, the first time through was just horrible. <laughs> and I would want to tell myself there are things that you're good at and stick with it and stick with God. Mm. But first, I know that I do that, so I don't need to tell myself that. <laughs> But secondly, telling yourself there are things that you're, you know, having someone else tell you that, it's like, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a real problem. It's there. It's hard for the same reason that trying to advise your children is hard. You have to be in a position to accept and understand the things that are said not just have the things said at you. And, you know, mm. maybe that's part of the reason that Jesus did the showing and not the telling. Mm. Some things, are, yeah, you have to learn by doing, by yeah. seeing or experiencing. Yeah. It's really good. Conrad, love you. Thanks for your time, your energy, your sure. creativity. Thanks for sharing. Happy to. Blessings. Thanks for listening today, and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for their support of this podcast. Grace that